Hello, everyone. This is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. Okay, we're live for another episode of the Resolve podcast. I'm here with an incredibly interesting man who has an incredibly interesting voice. I'll leave it at that. Uh, his name is Dov Ben Yaakov, Dov Ben Yaakov Kurtzman. Uh, Dov, thank you so much for coming on to speak with us. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I hope my voice isn't too uh, strange. Well, I'm going to just say uh, for people listening, pause. Get, take a guess where Dove is from. Okay. Do you have it in your head? Okay. And we want a city as well. Yeah. Well, where are you from? Where am I from? Yes. Okay. I was born in Scotland. You were born in Scotland. Okay. In Glasgow. In Glasgow. Okay. Did anybody get that right? I don't know. Um, so thanks so much for coming on. I don't like to do introductions before. I want you in your own words, just describe a little bit about yourself and how you spend your time. I spend my time nowadays uh, trying to help as many people as I can. That That's what I do. Uh, and I do it in a number of different channels. And it's all to do with um, psychology, emotions, and mental health, basically. I mean, that, that's the area that I'm working in. Amazing. And within that broader area, what are some of the big areas of focus that you have within mental health that really speak to you? What speaks to me is normalizing mental health. That's that's my side on it. So um, whereas the medical model or the pathological model is kind of the standard today, um, my, my take is that mental health and physical health are part of holistic human health. And we need to normalize uh, and bring out of the shadows, if you like, mental health into main mainstream lifestyle. The same as physical health is these days. And, and I'm not talking about just, you know, treatment. I'm talking about prevention. I'm talking about, you know, maybe, um, well, this is over in England, let's say, where, where I am at the moment. 50 years ago, if you saw somebody jogging down the street, you would think one or two things. One, that maybe there's something wrong with that person, uh, or the other thing is definitely an American tourist. So, um, but nowadays, if you're not, you know, part of a gym or you're not doing some sort of exercise or you're not looking after yourself physically and nutrition and so on, then that is a bit out of mainstream. So that's what I, that's my take on mental health. It should be brought into the open and be part of uh, daily living part of the range of normal human experience instead Absolutely. of instead of taboo. So while working out used to be taboo in some way or jogging would be taboo, who's that crazy person jogging? Um, maybe there, there's a frontier that can take place in our society where at one point we would have that same reaction in its own way about physical health, which we don't now. And maybe at, at, one, at some point mental health will be like jogging uh, and very normal. Absolutely. Okay. Three weeks, two cities, and one mission. Mind over terror. You wrote a book about a very, very important practice 
tool set, a story that happened and took place. I just want to hear a little bit about the story and tell us where it's gone off since then. So this is a story basically at the at the very root about how people can help people. Um, but it started, uh, I mean, this main events were in 2017, but it started basically in 2016 when um, I came to England to teach about um, cognitive psychological first aid. And um, basically that's about if there happens to be a disaster event, so that can be natural or man-made, uh, i.e. terrorist attack, let's say, um, my initial um, aim was to come to England and elsewhere in the planet and teach this commercially. So I wanted to do it for a profit, business. Um, and I started to do that in January 2017. And I was teaching in London bodyguards, bodyguards from all over Europe, um, VIP bodyguards, if they were with their client and they were involved in some sort of uh, uh, attack that, and their client went into psychological shock, then I was teaching them how to um, deal with the client on an immediate intervention. But that didn't last very long because by the time we got to me, of that same year, um, one of the most uh, destructive and horrific terrorist attack took place in the center of Manchester, uh, where 22 young people were killed at an Ariana Grande concert when a suicide bomber walked in and blew himself up at the end of the concert. And that concert arena it was only, um, or is only a couple of kilometers from where I live. Uh, and so all night I was getting phone calls from all sorts of people uh, saying, well, you're the guy that goes around advertising everywhere um, about your, uh, you know, inter uh, immediate and emergency psychological interventions. What are you going to do about this? <laughs> I don't know. I never thought what I was going to do about this. So um, basically I spent all night thinking, what am I going to do about this? Right. And I realized I was the only one in the country at that point um, that knew what to do uh, on an immediate basis. Um, but I had no idea. So the next morning, I went with a friend to the national or the, the, the vigil that they had in uh, Manchester for a kind of an immediate um, congregation of all the city and politicians and so on. Um, and on the way there, I had my kind of brainstorm and I said to my friend, I think the best thing to do is do what the Israelis do. And, and I bring that up because I was trained in Israel. This is Israeli technology and I have an Israeli military background. And so I said to him, I think what we're going to do is we're going to set up a field support center right in the middle of Manchester. And um, we're going to start, you know, in interventions uh, with people. And he thought that was a kind of a, a good idea, obviously. Anyway, we went to the vigil and the vigil finished. And he ran around all the press, Sky News, BBC, CNN. Everyone and their uncle was there and said, see that guy in the corner there? Um, he's got a solution what to do uh, in response to this terrorist attack. 
Um, and they all came running over. And they're like, "What? Who are you? And what you? Uh, you know, what are you going to do?" And I was like, really put on the spot. So, um, and all honest truth, I lied, and I said, um, "Well, I'm going to open up very soon this emergency support center, and I'm going to train probably about seven mental health workers in this new um, technology protocol, and uh, and that's it. And I'm going to do that." So they said to me. Well, particularly the BBC said to me, right, we're not going to take that totally as face value. It sounds great, but we're going to check you. And so we're going to interview you again in a few days. I said, yeah, that's fine. So that was the end of that day. And I thought, right, I've got myself into real bother here. So um, I started to phone around people and I hadn't been in Manchester very long, remember. So I started and I had no money to do this and I didn't know where I was going to start. And I, and I hadn't got a clue, actually. Um, and so I started to, to phone around a few of the people that I'd met since I'd been here. And basically, all I was wanting was more contacts. That's what I wanted. Um, but they started to hang the phone up on me after like three seconds, saying things like, oh, you're just all you want is money. I don't know who you are. Who are you? You're looking for donations and so on. And they just hung the phone up. And I was like, I didn't have a clue what to do. I'm like, I don't want money. I just want contacts. Just help me do this. Help me set it up. Anyway, that didn't get me anywhere. So I remembered that when I first came to Manchester, a very wealthy businessman approached me and he asked me if I would help him set up a um, rehabilitation center for addicts. Now, I had experience in my training. I'm a clinical social worker. And so I was trained originally in psychosis and in addiction work. And so he, he we got to know each other. Anyway, that didn't work out. So I'm now in dire straits. I lied to the BBC. Nobody's bothering with me. And, I, and I'm going to come out a total fool here. So I thought there's nothing. My back's against the wall. The only thing I can do now is to phone this guy. So I phoned this guy and I say, look, it's me. He goes, yeah, how are you doing? I said, no, I'm not doing well. I need your help. And, I, and I'd never done anything like this in my life before. I, I was literally shaking. He goes, what do you need? I said, I need two things. He goes, what, what's that? He says, I said, I need a place, because I knew he was in property. I said, I need a place in the middle of town that I can turn into a clinic. He goes, right, what's the second thing? I said, I need you to underwrite all the costs. Right. So he says to me, well, how much are we talking about? I said, I've got no idea. You just got to pay for it all. That's it. So he, he, he says, right, let me take care of the first thing first and then we'll get to the money. Anyway, to cut a long story short, within about 48 hours, he'd found uh, another uh, person who is willing to donate to me an empty store in the middle of Manchester. The most ideal position. So um, that was done. And the second thing was, in the meantime, the word went out that I was going to do this special training. And seven people did not turn up for this training, but over 100 people did. And so I ended up not only training seven people, but 70, because we didn't have enough time to train the rest. And there was a big, massive waiting list. So 
People were donating classrooms and so on. I got free tickets to bring my Israeli colleagues over to help do the training. We trained everybody in three days and we opened up after one week. Now, just to give you a kind of an idea, the National Health Service in, in, the, in the UK is the, is the uh, 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 health service of the country. And they took three months to, to respond, right? So we responded in one week. Um, total Israeli style. We set it up. There's a whole, all the information, you know, the, the, all the backstories are in are in the book. But one story I'll I'll leave you with, and then and then we'll move on. Is um, I had this whole wonderful empty space. I had 70 trained people. I brought a specialist over from Israel to do all the operations and the shift work, and and it was all it was all done that we were going to have total shifts for a whole month. Anyway, the place is empty. It was massive, but it was empty. I mean, it's no clinic, no furniture, no nothing, uh, no rooms. It was just a big space. And I had no idea um, how I'm going to turn this into a clinic. Anyway, I'm sitting with a few colleagues and we had, you know, our orange gear on at the time because that was our uniform. And uh, we're drinking mineral water because that's all we had. And, you know, we're on the storefront on the main street. So people were popping their heads in now and then. Anyway, this gentleman, about 24 years old, pops his head in and says, what, what are you guys doing? So we told him. So he said, oh, that sounds interesting, and, and went to walk off. And I said, no, 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 if you're already here, come and tell us about you and have a drink of water with us. So he said, right, well, that's fine. So I said, uh, what are you doing in Manchester? He says, I'm looking for work. So I said, well, what do you do? He says, I'm a shop fitter. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I, I, I said, look, my dream, and I only have 24 hours, is to turn this place into a clinic. And over here, I see a group room. Over here, I see an office. Here's a few individual therapy rooms. And over here is a media center because the media were on us all the time. And he said, yeah, I can do that for you in 24 hours. Anyway, the rest of the story, I'll leave if you want to read in the book. A couple of days later, once we started the, the, the clinic, and the clinic ran for a full month, and the reason for that is after a month, it's PTSD, and I didn't want to get involved, and there's plenty of charities out there that will do that. Um, after two days, I get a ring from Buckingham Palace, which is the, the royal families, uh, and they wanted a secret meeting uh, the next day. <laughs> and uh, it was a secret meeting in the Manchester Cathedral and uh, it was top secret and yeah, eventually I went and I met um, Prince William, the future king of uh, the Great Britain um, and that whole story is a whole business around that and that's in, in the book as well Wow um, I didn't read the book so I didn't expect the story I mean you're always a storyteller. And unfortunately, I mean, these things should never happen. I mean, the fact that you mobilized a team of people from start to finish, I mean, the faith that you have to have to just go ahead and say, I, you know, basically we could, I'm going to build it and then it's going to happen. Uh, and the amount of coordination and, and it's not, it's not a believable story. It's not a believable story. Well, you know, the the thing is that, you know, it's all it's nice looking back, right? What I didn't tell you is a week later than that, there was a, a terrorist attack in London on London Bridge and Borough Market, and we took a team down there. 
A week after that, there was a Grenfell fire, which was a big block of flats that went up and fire in 10 minutes, people jumping off the top. And we were there as well. But you I want to stress, and this is this is in the book, I think, I was I was um questioning my sanity the whole way through. Right. So so yeah, uh, uh, things happened and and I and I led this whole these missions. But you know, I was waking up in the morning going, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Do I do I really know what I'm doing here? Right. So there, there was that questioning. And I think this is a real big lesson. And, and there's a lesson for anybody one, first of all, that wants to do anything, is that um when you set yourself a goal you are automatically less than that goal, right? And that sounds trivial, but it means that you are not who you think you want to be. So um, you're going to get all these thoughts and you're going to get all this questioning of yourself of, wow, am I really qualified? Am I really experienced enough? And I, am I really able to do this? And the, and the real answer is at this particular moment, no. <laughs> but you're going to learn on the way if you keep going, right? Um, and so that, so that is part of it. And it's really, it's really important to, to bring that in. This was the first time that I'd actually ever done anything like this. I'd done many other projects, but not like this one. Of course, there are limitations and there are things that can't happen. I mean, that are not within the realm of possibility. But I think what you're talking about is a flexibility to decide when to listen to those thoughts and when not to listen to those thoughts. For you, it was above your level. Anytime you're reaching for something, it's above your level. But it wasn't, I'm going to play in the NBA tomorrow and your brain's saying, you're not going to make it to the NBA. Of course, you're not going to make it to the NBA or this, you know, the Premier League, no matter what you say. Uh, at this point in your life, that wasn't what it was. It was something that was theoretically in the realm of possibility, but way beyond what you could possibly have imagined. And you decided to let those thoughts just stay where they were. And it wasn't going to stop you from doing what you needed to do. Absolutely. And and another thing which helped with that is, um, you know, don't do it on your own. Right. So I, I, I recruited- you, asked, you asked for help. I asked you asked for help, for help. and you talked to people constantly. Yeah, and yeah, Dove, you always. talked to somebody who came in that ended up building the storefront for you. So what does that tell you? Uh, uh, yeah, you've got to reach out. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to ask for help and, and you've got to be humble enough to ask for help. Okay. And you're going to say, I don't know. I need to build a team that's going to help me. And I, because I don't need to know, and I don't need to know everything. I just need to, believe in the vision enough to bring other people along with me. I went straight from a wise person. One plus one equals 11. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that wise person too. Your and uncle Norman. And it's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. Uncle Norman. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And I really hope, you know, God forbid these terrible things should happen. You mobilized, you got yourself going and you did the, the best you could. Did Do you think you made a difference? Do you think that people, were able to have some healing from the type of treatment that you provided. So, so the, the the unequivocal answer is yes, and the reason is because the because the results are instant. This is not counseling. It's not psychotherapy. It's instant intervention when somebody is in psychological shock. That one of the best examples that I have of this was in that fire, the Grenfell fire, a very famous fire in England, because the whole building 
Uh, you know that stuff that you, when you light a barbecue, you shouldn't really use it, but it's that fire lighter stuff and you put it on the, and, and, and it sparks off the barbecue. So this was a building, you know, like a high rise um, skyscraper building of residential homes that the whole cladding was made of this stuff. Right. So as soon as there was a fire, the whole building went up and it was and it was a shock to everybody because nobody realized it um, until afterwards, of course. So at this um, event, when people were jumping out buildings and there was total chaos, a group of people were told by the authorities to congregate in a local um, community center. In that community center, our team arrived and there is a woman there who had doesn't didn't know where a five-year-old son was and she assumed the worst and she was in total hysterics she was in super psychological shock not only that her family around her were in hysterics with her so the whole thing was completely uh you know it was at temperatures that nobody could break through and the police wanted to talk to her to see if they could get some sort of information to help look for this little boy but they could not get through to her. The screaming and the hysterics were just, you know, extraordinary. Anyway, my team asked permission and the police said, yeah, please do. They went and within about three minutes, they had got her out of that psychological shock and she was talking to the police. That's the kind of thing that we can do, right? So that is what this intervention is all about. So it's it's an immediate de-escalation of 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 the shock it, it it's it, you you could see the results almost immediately uh, in these in these particular yeah, situations it's about getting somebody out of psychological shock within 90 seconds to maybe two three minutes so of course this is a more an extensive training and there's a big background to it can you just sort of roughly in in, in layman's terms just go over this the, the short calls notes of the process that's obviously very expansive yeah so we, we, we call it, you know, we have a name, we call it Cortex. So, um, and we use that, um, you know, the, the, the initials for that. So the, the first part, it's all about, it's all about being cognitive. That's why it's called cognitive psychological first aid. So it's all about, um, you know, being cognitive. Um, so it's made up of what's called the six C's. The six C's, I didn't invent this, which was invented by Moshe Farhi of Tel Chai uh, University in the north of Israel. And the first thing is about communication. And it's about establishing a communication, whether verbal or nonverbal, with the person that, uh, that you have to deal with. Uh, and remember, these people are in psychological shock, so it's not a very easy thing just to communicate with them. And then you have to do a, a number of things with them. And that is, you know, you have to have a commitment towards them. You have to express that commitment because one of the problems with acute stress uh, reaction, and this is not a pathological, but basically your brain gets hijacked by your emotional side of the brain. There's a whole science behind it. But basically, um, one, of the, one of the symptoms of that, one of the signs is a person feels extremely lonely. So you, you have to go through a protocol which... Um, you know, manages to get the message over to them that you're committed to them and, and they're not alone. Um, and then um, we have to start triggering that prefrontal cortex again to try and get rid of that hijacking. And so there's a certain amount of different types of challenges um, that you have to um, embark with them. 
um, and then give them a certain continuity of their uh, uh, chronological um, memory processing. So when somebody's in psychological shock, they might process the events in the wrong chronological order. So the future might be in the past, the past might be the present, present in the future. And it begins to be a bit of a whole, um, you know, salad and mishmash there of, of memories. And this is one of the things that feeds, um, that feeds PTSD later on, because later on, the, there's a lot of things you might know about PTSD, which is flashbacks and nightmares and bad memories. And one of the possible causes for that is the fact that the brain realizes that the memory the chronological memory is not processed it correctly um, and so it's trying to go back there and, and find out all that either missing information or trying to make some order of it unfortunately after about six hours we know that these memories are kind of solidified and it's very difficult um, to, if at all to change them so mm. that's also a, a really important part of it so when we use the word cortex um, we're talking about C is, is basically for connection. That's, be that's be that. Before we say any more, just it sounds just when you go through it, do you want to tell us an example? Give us an example of how like just, you know, the case study of the person that you mentioned with the family that couldn't find the, the, the child. How, what would that look like from the C to the O to the R to the E to the X in the broad scale? Right. So so first of all, you know, when you approach them and it, and the, and that's the the you know, sometimes a difficult part from a cultural per perspective. If you're a therapist, you wait till your client comes to you. But in this case, in this case, because they're emergency responders, they approach the actual uh, human being. So they approach them and they try to make a connection. So there's an eye to eye connection. There's a verbal connection. And if that doesn't work, then there's a nonverbal uh, touch connection that, that you have to make. So you first of all, you have to connect with them, explain who you are, um, the O is that obligation, that obligation of I'm with you, that obligation of you're not alone. Um, that has to be made very clearly once you've got some sort of communication with them. Then you want to go on to regaining some control. You want to help them gain control. What is usually, and now just to give you a, a perspective here, what is usually uh, done in these circumstances is, let's say an ambulance driver or, or, or a paramedic will come into a situation like that. They automatically, at the moment, treat that person as being in a pathological state. And so we'll, you know, if I asked you, if you saw a road accident or you saw a disaster and the, the medics are going up and they're not physically injured, what would you see if you were going to see something? What would be one of the things that you would see um, them doing with that person? What's the first kind of instinctual reaction? Are you there? Are you okay? Uh, oh, no, no, no. You, well, like, like oh. if you were watching it on the TV, what oh. do you see? Usually. When uh -huh. people are in accidents or people are in uh, disasters, Blood? what do you see them? Now, what do you see the paramedics doing for them? Checking their, their are they? Okay, that's the physical thing. Giving After them water. I, are you trying to talk to them? Right. No. Usually they put a blanket around them. Oh, okay. A blanket. Right? Yes, a blanket. They put a blanket, and a blanket is almost like a metaphorical hug. You might even see them hugging them. You might even see them holding them. You might even see them linking arms and leading them somewhere. Because they're, you know, they're all kind of dazed. 
right? So if I'm telling you that you have an emotional hijack in the brain, what do you think are these cognitive uh, um, actions or are they emotional actions? Oh, emotional. Yeah, and so what what will that do? Do you think? Well, you 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 could act completely out of character. You could you could do things that you're not even wanting to do at all. Well, yeah, I mean, if I'm telling you your brain's emotionally hijacked and you do some more emotional stuff, you're only adding fuel to the fire, really, aren't you? So you want to get rid of, you want you don't want to be emotional right away. You want to be cognitive. You want to be practical. And basically what you're trying to do is to re-trigger that prefrontal cortex, put the amygdala down and be less emotional. So you want to help them regain control. There's nothing wrong with these people. They might be dazed. They might be in shell shock. They might be in a psychological shock, but they need to start doing things. And you have to help them do something so in this case that's what they did and you do it by giving some tasks as well right so cortex we're in the t you have to give them a certain amount of tasks and you have to give them it in a certain way and you have to talk to them in a certain way and then what you want to do is you want to establish that chronology of what's happened yeah there was a fire now you're sitting um here in the in the you know collection center and um in a few minutes we're going to take you over and you're going to talk to those police Right. So you've given them you've given hooks for the brain to catch on to the chronology of the thing. And then you want to start exchanging that power. So once they've come up, once they've come out of the psychological shock, you want to uh, give them responsibilities. So you want to start saying, you know, you've given the you've given the information to the police. Yeah, yeah, I've done that. Okay, I'd, what I'd like you to do is to go and take these people in the corner some water and ask if they need any food and come back and let us know. And now you've empowered them. And so when somebody's empowered, their thinking is there's nothing wrong with me. If you give them a blanket and put them in an ambulance, take them to, to hospital, and I'm talking about if they're not physically injured, they're going to think I'm a patient and there's something wrong with me. Oh, no, my goodness. And that could possibly contribute to PTSD later on. So if you what you want to do is you want to be able to um, empower them in a such a way after you've got them out of psychological shock so that they are not, so they can carry on being functional. And we've seen this tested, battle tested in the Israeli army, for instance, where every combat soldier is taught this now. And if they are um, uh, in, a, in a battle and a mortar will go off beside them and they get into psychological shock, then in the American or uh, British armies, I'm not sure about Canadian, but certainly possibly the same, they will bring in a helicopter or they'll bring in an evacuation unit and they will take that soldier out and, and get him treated in hospital. In the Israeli army, they do nothing of the kind. They do this protocol. The soldier gets up after three minutes and carries on his battle. That's what we're talking about. And that, and, and exchange now soldier for fireman or policeman or, uh, or individual uh, like every individual needs to learn CPR because they can be walking along the street and somebody has um, a, a heart event in front of them. If you know CPR, you could save their life. This can also save people's lives. So just like CPR for the heart, this is like CPR for the brain. And that kind of winds it up. It sounds like it's one of those things that God forbid you should ever need, um, but you need it. If, if you just want to be a responsible citizen, if God forbid you're in a situation where you know, you, you're driving by something and someone's hurt. You got to go over there. And there's obviously the physical part that if there's something that they need, but 
but helping them regain it sounds like what on a on a broader level what you're trying to do there is re reintegrate them back into the world thinking that they're intact as opposed to i'm there's a damage that i can't get over it's it's like not only are you bringing them back to the world but then you're saying and do something do another thing in this world do something for somebody else right around you you're just trying to bring them back into the normal reality yeah absolutely and what we want to do with this as we are we are working now in in the uk and we want to do this internationally as well but at the moment we're working on the uk to develop what we call the fourth emergency service so you have a fire service you have a police service you have an ambulance service but nobody's taking care of psychological injured so we want to bring in a fourth emergency service which will run to car accidents will run to disasters of any sort and take care of the psychologically injured sounds like it's a very very important big topic is there anything that you want to say to students on their own level about how they can understand, apply some of the principles, whether they're indirectly, whether it's not the, you know, the whole system itself, a anything that you think out of all the things that you could share that would really help them in this, in this realm? So I think the first thing is that um, this tr training and this protocol, we know, even if you don't use it as a responder of any sort, just by learning that there is something that can be done, we know help somebody if they're in a, a, a disaster themselves. Because once you've learned that um, not all is lost, then uh, and there's things that you can do even to your to yourself, um, then you've got a, a far uh, better chance of uh, coming out of this in a much more resilient way. Um, what I would say to, to students, though, is what I've learned in the big picture, which I explained at the very beginning, and that is don't hold yourself back because of fears um, and, and go for whatever, you know, ask for help, go for whatever it is that you have a vision in, you, in your mind that you want to create in this world and uh, put one step after the other, even though it's very frightening and fearful, ask for mentors ask for help um, from people that can, you know, shine that light on the way and just keep going. I think, you know, in addition to that sort of persistence and not, not fearlessness, but being full of fear and doing the work that you need to do as best as you can, it's to ask for help. I think that asking for help is a part that's lost, especially young people where they think they know everything or they, they think that they they figured it all out or nobody can understand me or et cetera, et cetera. Asking for help in whatever form that it comes in. One plus one is 11. One plus one is not two. It's just two. It, it, it takes it to a higher level. And you asked for help and you've at that time and continuing to, to deal with a very important issue. And it started with you had your training, but you asked for help and you, you built something around you in response to what was needed. Oh, I 100% agree. Asking for help is commonly looked upon as a weakness. It's actually a strength. I continue to ask for help today in everything that I do. Um, and I think that is that it shows that, um, again, the humbleness of asking for help opens you up for new learning, opens you up for being in a better place than you are today. And that doesn't matter if you're having... Um, emotional or psychological issues that you want to you want to deal with, then yeah, open up and ask for help. That's the courageous part. Courage 
doesn't come from people who are fearless. Courage is having fear and making that move anyway. That's what courage is. And, and asking for help takes courage, but there is so many benefits at the end of it if, if, you, if you can just muster up enough courage to do so. And a lot of that has to do with our relationship with our thoughts. And we, we know just the way Dove is speaking, that acceptance and commitment therapy and ACT as an approach, and it can be very, very helpful. And, and maybe we'll have Dove on for another discussion about some of the key areas of growth that, that we can all learn from him in the areas of, of, of mental health more generally beyond psychological first aid. I appreciate your time so much. Uh, well, I appreciate you asking me. It's always a privilege, uh, and and I'm willing to to talk to anybody or travel anywhere in the world if it's possibility of even helping one person. And of course, a disclaimer: this podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Go to www.resolve with two V's. .ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www resolve that's resolve with two v's dot ca to learn more about how our services can support your needs till next next time time, take take care. care theme song for this podcast is done by the band mokuse no maguro in their song midnight empty street (laughs) 